Can you hear me? Oh, great. Our sermon text this morning is from Hebrews 8, um, 1 to 13, the chapter. Um, It's on 1192 in your pew Bible, if you want to turn there. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor... And each one is brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes this first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if I got that right or not. Um, So, uh, we're actually going to be doing the Jesse tree after the sermon. So, don't stampede up here yet, kids. Um, that'll be right after the sermon. Sorry to fake you out. Good morning again. Um, we're going to be continuing, obviously, in our series on Hebrews this morning with Hebrews 8, which I just read. Um, again, it's on 1192 if you want to turn there. And to sort of set the scene a little bit here, if you wanted to come up with a cute title for this series on Hebrews, it would be, Jesus is Better. Jesus is better. I, I was actually going to title this sermon something like Jesus is better part 11 or something like that. But every time I counted all the sermons that we've done on this, I came up with a different number. So, you know, didn't want to mess up and, you know, second guessing myself. But again, the point of this is that Jesus is better. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying over and over and over again. We'll get into the nitty gritty of this passage in just a second. But on, just on first hearing, when you just heard that, you, you know, you don't need like a deep exposition of the text to know what this is about. He's saying, you know, in verse one, it actually says, here's the point in all this. Here's, here's the main point. The point in what we are saying is this, because he's in the middle of this big argument, which in the book overall is Jesus is better. And in this chunk of the text, it's Jesus is a better High priest, Jesus offers us a better covenant. I talked about that last week in Hebrews 7. 
Now, there isn't just like one place. It'd be nice if there was like one place in this book where the author was just like, here is exactly what your problem is, right? He doesn't tell us that. Um, but that actually kind of makes sense that he doesn't tell us that. If this is an actual early Christian community leader writing to another Christian community of, of the Hebrews, right? Like if you're a doctor, um, if you cut your finger off on Thanksgiving, you're cutting the turkey, cut your finger off, you go to the doctor. The next week, you know, the doctor probably isn't going to call you up and say, well, when you cut your finger off when carving the turkey last Thursday at 12.06 because you were distracted by the Cowboys game or whatever, right? He's not, he's not going to call and go over all that. You already kind of knew all that, that you have a, you have a pre-existing relationship and he's going to call and just say, here's, here's where you need to go from this. And if you were overhearing that conversation, you might be able to pick up some of those pieces, right? But it's not going to say that right up front. So someone is giving the answer to a problem and they're saying, X is better than Y. We don't need Y anymore because we have X. Y is temporary and X will be here forever. If, if you're hearing that, you can probably conclude that the problem is that the people are still going for Y. They're still going for the inferior thing. So that was the problem. We can say that's the problem for this Christian community. They had lived with this old covenant, with this old story for so long. Since they were born, this old religious system based around tabernacles and priests and sacrifices, the story was so comfortable to them because that was their history, right? And it was more acceptable to Rome, so it made life a little bit easier for them. It was appealing to them. That story was appealing to them. And I don't know about you, I don't really face the same temptation as they did. I'm I'm not walking down the street, I don't see a, a pigeon and think, you know, that pigeon would look really good cut up, right? I'd love to just offer that pigeon in ritual sacrifice. I don't think most of us are tempted by that, thankfully. If you are, there's probably people, you know, you can talk to. But we do face similar issues as them. We face similar temptations as them, even if it doesn't look exactly the same. I can still identify a little bit with the pull of this story on this Christian community. It's like Abram talked about. It's the first Sunday in Advent. We have um, awesome people. Don't know exactly who they all are, but awesome people came here yesterday, decorated the church. Second floor looks greater, by the way, than it ever has since I've been here. I've set a very low bar for that, but y'all did awesome. So I just want to say thank you for that. Um, the the first Sunday in Advent always sneaks up on me. Um, I, I, I always end up, you know, usually last minute carrying that stump of the Jesse tree down from the third floor and, and dragging it over here. That's usually my exercise for the week. Just did that um, before I could get to it this week, thankfully. Um, but it always sneaks up on me, right? I don't, I don't know if it's the same for you. Um, but it struck me this week in kind of thinking about the Advent season, which I wasn't really ready for, that this is a season of stories. Not, not just in church, but culturally as well. Some are stories we tell many times to our kids, and many times these are stories of magic, and, you know, there's a lot of tradition behind them. They have a lot of moral elements. You know, I'm not just thinking, I mean, the Santa thing is included in that, but also, you know, stories like A Christmas Carol and, you know, Rudolph. Like, there's a ton of them, right, that we um, that we tell in our culture. There's heroes and villains and naughty and nice lists and 
You know, we tell them to the kids to kind of orient them to who we are and how they should act and um, what they should or shouldn't be doing. Some of the stories that we have, though, and, and that I'm reminded of in the season aren't just ones that we explicitly read aloud, right? And they're not just for kids. Um, but some of the stories are stories that we act out or act into. You know, I think of Black Friday, right? Just a couple days ago. Hopefully some of you got some good deals. And it tells us how, um, and the story that Black Friday is telling is one of us as consumers. It tells us who we are. We're consumers and what we're supposed to make purchases to bring, you know, these companies into the black, into a profit. And it also kind of tells us how to find redemption and fulfillment. Like, you know, if, if you, if you get this thing, then you'll be fulfilled. You'll have, you'll have some level of happiness and fulfillment. We live in a world of stories that orient us to who we are. They're, all these stories are provided to us so that we can kind of choose from the claims they're making a path to reality, a path to finding who we are, what we're supposed to do, and how to find fulfillment in the world. And then the lack of having a shared cultural overarching big story we have all of these, we have all of these stories at our disposal that we can pick from and we can add to and we can overlap on ourselves, right? There's the story of consumerism that you can live into, story of sex and sexual identity, sexual fulfillment. There's a story of political action and, and justice. There's a story of careerism and career advancement. They all claim to give us paths to reality, to figuring out who we are, what we're supposed to do in the world, and how we find our ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. Many of these stories we live with, sometimes, you know, they're very they're very clear to us, and we can say, yes, I believe that, and sometimes they're a little bit more subtle, right? A little bit more low-key. Some of these aren't just in a neutral space with Christianity, right? Like, none of those things I just talk about are bad in and of themselves, but when they start getting us to live into their story when they start saying, this is who you are, this is what you're supposed to do, and this is how you find fulfillment, then they become a competition to the Christian story, to the gospel story, in direct competition with it. They're telling a different story. They're providing us with a different path to reality in regard to who we are, what we're supposed to do, and how to find redemption. They can, inch by inch, and either with loud shouts or with low whispers, start to pull away at our faith, to tug at our faith, to draw us away from the gospel and into believing and away from believing the Christian story. In a very real way, this is the story of deconstruction. I don't know if you're familiar with the way I'm I'm using that word. Some of you are and some of you aren't. Probably um, the, the ones that are are more online, have a bigger online presence, or more aware of evangelical culture. But there's this thing within evangelical culture that they're labeling deconstruction now. And, and essentially, deconstruction, in the way I'm using that word here, means re-examining every part of your faith or belief system that you held. And, and for the most part, it also means the rejection of that, right? We're looking at all the individual parts down to the foundations of what we believe, and we're, we're getting rid of the stuff that doesn't fit with how we're feeling or thinking or um, desiring right now. This path to reality 
leads away from anything that reeks of institution and tradition. And um, many people are either being led away from the faith through this, um, or they're lopping off, chopping off different parts of the foundational message of the gospel. The motivations for this variant, you know, I, I should say that a lot of the motivation for this for some people is the abuses they've seen in the church, the hypocrisy they've seen in the church, the sin and the suffering caused by church leaders that, you know, those things require gentleness and sensitivity. And, you know, there are some aspects of Christian culture that should be de- constructed, right? There's some, you know, extra biblical things that we add to it sometimes that we do need to deconstruct. But ultimately, the story for many of these people in this movement are still the same. When you aren't sure about the story you grew up with, Here's one that tells you who you are, what you should do, and how to find fulfillment. And it gives you community to help you do that, right? So there's there's plenty of stories that we have today that can pull us back, push us forward, move us left, move us right of the gospel story. And what does the writer of Hebrews do in light of that? In light of there being another story that's pushing this Christian community away from Jesus. Let's see what he does. So let's look in uh, verses 1 and 2. Now the point in what we're saying, um, and, and this is, in what we're saying, he's talking about the stuff that Mike talked about last week from chapter 7. So the high priesthood, um, or Jesus as the high priest, how Jesus relates to Melchizedek. And it, he kind of introduced the, the idea of covenant um, and the old and new covenant and the relationship of them to us. The point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand, which is the place of honor and priority, right? Of the throne of the majesty, which writer of Hebrews is using for a word, you know, just to refer to God, in heaven. Verse 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So in these verses, the author is highlighting something. A reason that Jesus is better than the priesthood under the Old Testament. So we saw from the chapter last week, and our kids said it again this week, and um, Abram kind of mentioned it. Um, Jesus as the high priest saves to the, what, the uttermost, right? Which, again, has been mentioned multiple times as a weird word, right? Um, like, um, do, do we have any kids that want to say what they think of when we hear the word uttermost? Anybody want to? No? I think of cows, right? Like, you know, me as a very mature adult, I hear that word and I, I think of cows. But what the word means, like, like Abram said this morning, is that that means that Jesus saves to the fullest, to the farthest extent possible. Think of how far Jesus could save and it's, it's more than that. And, and the argument, the context of that was that there's no salvation expiration date. Jesus really saves. He really saves. There's there's a sense of completion there, and there's a sense of it goes really far. There's no end of his salvation. There's nothing temporary about Jesus as our high priest. The other high priests, you know, on the day of the of atonement, what they would do is they'd get prepared, and they'd walk into the Holy of Holies, and they'd try not to die, and then they walk out. But what does Jesus do? That, that, that's how the high priest in the Old Testament came into the presence of God. They, you know, they walked in, tried not to die, they came out. What does Jesus do? He goes into the presence of God, he's seated at the right hand of God, and he pops a squat. 
He sits down. Right? He's not leaving. He's not, he's not going anywhere. He's there eternally. And so if he's there eternally, our salvation is also there eternally in the true tent, in the presence of God. And the, the reason that it says true will become apparent as we talk about um, a later part of the passage. But um, it is kind of important that he uses the word tent here because that actually refers to the tabernacle. It, it intentionally um, does not refer to the temple. Um, the writer of Hebrews actually never in this book that I know of, I guess I should say, refers to the temple. He's always talking about the tabernacle. Why? Because the point he's trying to make, Jesus is in the eternal, true presence of God. And he's contrasting that with the tabernacle, which was even on earth temporary. Like the Jews knew, the difference between the tabernacle and the temple, or at least one of the one of the differences, is that the tabernacle was kind of a, a temporary thing, right? Like God gave that to Moses so they could kind of move it. And it was like a provisional thing up until the temple got there. Tabernacle's temporary. It was, me- it was never meant to be a permanent thing. It was meant to foreshadow something else later. He's highlighting the fact that Jesus is forever seated in the presence of God in the real heavenly realm for all time. Look at verse 3 with me. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this high priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. All this means is, you know, and I think we've referred to this before, Jesus was not in the tribe of Levi. The priests in the Old Testament were from the tribe of Levi, and that wasn't Jesus. He was in the line of Judah, which is... um, you know, an important point for a lot of prophecies, but he could not have been an earthly priest, which works out because he's from another priesthood, which we talked about a lot before, the Melchizedekian priesthood. Um, That's a mouthful. A heavenly high priest who offers himself instead of these other gifts or sacrifices that he talks to. He's offering himself. Look at verse 5. They, so this is talking about specifically the priests, or the high priest, but also, you know, everything that went into that system, the tabernacle, the the sacrifices and all that, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So this is actually a quotation from Exodus 25, where God is saying, here's a tent, go make it, Right? And he's, the author of Hebrews here is kind of riffing off the fact that God showed him something, something of a heavenly reality, and that's what he built the tabernacle from. That's where the tabernacle came from. So there's a heavenly reality of God's presence that Moses experiences, and then from that reality comes the tabernacle, which is a copy of the original, but not the original. A shadow of the real thing, but not the real thing, Right? This whole story of redemption that the the priests and the sacrifices and the tabernacle and all that went into are shadows that are not reality but are supposed to point to the ultimate reality. I don't know how familiar you are um, with the philosophy of Plato, um, but a lot of people see a lot of similarities between what Plato, who's a Greek philosopher, lived like, I want to say like 400 BC. Somebody's going to correct me on that afterward. But... 
Um, he was kind of in that inter- intertestamental period, but not, you know, from the Jewish tradition. He was a Greek philosopher. And he had all these ideas um, about what reality was like. And um, some people actually think that, you know, the writer of Hebrews was thinking about Plato when he wrote this. Or, you know, they see it in different parts of the New Testament. I don't think that's true. Because I think that's one of those stories that was told that tells a different story of who we are and what we should do and where we find a fulfillment, right? It's, it's different from the Christian um, Judeo tradition, uh, different ideas there. But I do think that he has a lot to um, say that actually provides a pretty cool illustration for this. So I'm going to use that. I'm not saying this is, you know, this chapter is Platonic, but I am saying that I, I think it provides a good, you know, picture of, of what this looks like. So Plato had this thing um, that he used to explain his philosophy called the allegory of the cave. The allegory of the cave. And so the allegory of the cave goes something like this. Imagine that there's a group of prisoners, and they're all shackled together. They're shackled in such a way that they can only look forward for their entire lives. In front of them is a you know a big kind of flat wall, and behind them is a big fire. And in between, so there's like a fire... And then there's the prisoners, they're sitting down, and then there's a flat wall they're kind of looking at right there, right? And between the fire and the prisoners, so at their backs, are these people that are walking around, and they have like puppets, or something like puppets. I don't know if they had puppets back in Greece, they probably did. Um, But something like puppets, and they'd hold these puppets that kind of mimicked things from the outside world, like trees, and people, and animals, and clouds, um, and they'd hold those in front of the fire. And so all the prisoners would see is these shadows of these puppets that are, you know, they're dancing around. Maybe they hear the people walking around and talking and they think, you know, that's what these shadows are doing. But they, all they ever see in their life are shadows. And Plato kind of said, that's, that's what reality is. Nothing's real. There's stuff real somewhere else, but it's not here. Right? And then Plato says, imagine that one of these prisoners gets freed. So he's freed. He runs out of the cave. There's kind of like a a rocky or rough ascent out of the cave. He has a hard time. He's kind of blinded because he's not used to the light. And he runs outside and he sees what? Real trees, real clouds, real people, real animals. And he finally understands that what he had been looking at all of his life were shadows. They were shadows of the real thing, but they weren't the real thing. And Plato kind of goes on to say, like, you know, he wants to go free all the prisoners and so and, and tell them what reality is. So he goes down and, you know, he's kind of blinded when he goes back down because it's really dark, you know. Like if you ever, I don't know, are coming in from a really sunny outside and you walk into a dark theater or something and it takes a little bit of time to reorient your eyes. So he's kind of temporarily blinded. They think he gets, they think he's like suffering because of the reality that he sees. And so they don't want to go with him and they don't believe him. Because these shadows are their reality. And the writer of Hebrews is kind of saying, what you're doing is like if you went out of the cave, you saw all of the real things, and then you went back in the cave and sat down and shackled yourself up again and stared at shadows for the rest of your life. That's what you're doing. If you're going back to these things that were only meant to serve as shadows, that point to reality, but are not reality, then what you're doing is choosing the unreal over the real. 
the story that does not lead you down the path of reality. That's how, that's how crazy it is of what you're doing. You're choosing the thing that is just merely the pointer to, to something else which you were able to see. Right? Going back to Hebrews 6 where he says, you've experienced all this stuff. You saw Jesus. You've heard the gospel preached. You've had the sacraments. And you're going back to that? You're going back to that story? That's crazy. And that's dumb, right? That's, that, like we can't even imagine going back, you know, if somebody only sees shadows for the rest of their, for their whole lives and then they see the real thing wanting to go back to the shadows. It doesn't make any sense to us. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is, is saying what they're doing is. Those shadows are just meant to point to the real presence of God in Jesus. But, uh, let's look at verse six here. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. That's actually one word in the Greek. Much more excellent. And interestingly, it was also used back in chapter 1 to refer to how Jesus was better than angels. So again, this is you know the recurring theme. Jesus is better. He's much more excellent. Christ has obtained a ministry that's much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion. There's no reason to look for a second. And I know we've talked about this a little already, but covenant is a super important word, so I'm going to talk about it again. One part of Reformed theology, which kind of we hold to as a church and as a denomination, is covenant theology. It's just, which is just basically a way of saying you can see the whole Bible as one story through the idea of covenant and how God makes covenants with people. Um, and we can kind of understand covenant a little bit through the word that's used here. So there's two words that have kind of like, they're kind of like contracty words in Greek. One refers more to an agreement. You know, there's, there's two people, they're on equal footing, and they come to an agreement. Like they're, you know, making a handshake or something, right? And the other word, the word that it actually uses for covenant here is different. You know, that, that kind of just equal footing agreement, that's not what this is talking, that's not what this is talking about. It's using a word that means more like will. Like we would think of a will. Like this is one person initiating. This is one person that's, that's kind of bringing in the covenant, setting the terms of the covenant. And the, the other party is the party that is just, you know, they agree to it or, or they don't, but they, they don't set the terms. They don't initiate it. And that's what this is. This is God coming. He's initiating with his people and he's saying, here are the obligations for me. Here are the obligations for you. And here's what's going to happen if you break these or if I break these. There's still obligations to both parties, but God is initiating and driving. It's a God-initiated, relationship-defining, binding set of promises with his people. And God made it, made covenants throughout the Old Testament. And specifically, you know, the Old Covenant here mostly refers to the Mosaic Covenant, like the one with Moses which included the whole of the of the law. But what's the fault that the writer of Hebrews is talking about here? What's the fault of the covenant? Notice that he says in verse 7, there's a fault with the covenant, right? Verse 7, he says, for if the first covenant had been faultless. So he's saying there's a, there's a fault in the covenant. But then in verse 8, he actually says, for he finds fault with them. So that's a little weird, right? Because he'd been referring to the covenant in the singular. So if he says with them, 
Who's he talking about there? A group of people. And to explain this, uh, the writer makes... This is actually the longest quote of the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, in case you're ever in a Bible trivia game or something. Um, and he quotes, you know, there's this long quote from Jeremiah 31. And he kind of explains, and this is explaining what the fall of the covenant was. Behold, I'm in verse 8 here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The fault with the covenant and the fault with the people um, are, are, are kind of the same idea here. The fault with the covenant was that the people kept breaking it. There's obligations for both parties. And, you know, they didn't just kind of forget a few things here and there or miss a couple of things. Like, they broke it. They ruptured it. They ripped it up. And you can kind of, you can kind of hear the heartbreak here. God says, on, on the day I took them by the hand, he takes, you know, the imagery there of kind of like a, a parent leading them out of slavery. I took them by the hand. And if you look at Jeremiah 31, um, it says... God, God actually says in Jeremiah 31, they broke the covenant, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And so he's kind of using husband imagery that he uses throughout Scripture. And when he says, I showed no concern for them, he isn't saying he stopped loving his people or stopped caring about their futures. What he's saying is that there were obligations. There was stuff I had to do here. There was stuff you had to do here. And you broke it. And so all of the curses of the covenant had to fall on you, and I had to be a part of that. I had, to, I had to punish you for that. The covenant imposed punishment on his people when they broke it, and they had to face that. And all that leads to, what do we go from here? What about this broken covenant? What about the covenant breakers? When I've, when I've heard uh, people who you know, don't believe this stuff kind of mocking this, or even people that you know, profess to be... Christians, but don't really like the Old Testament. When I've heard people mocking this, you know, I've heard them, you know, kind of making snide remarks about, like, oh, all the, all the smitings and all the judgment in the Old Testament and all the, all the weird laws, right? There's funky laws about, I don't know, snails and stuff. And, um, and, and then I, I've heard people that are making fun of the, you know, Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament kind of bring in covenant here too. Like, oh, the covenants and the judgment and the wrath. It kind of sounds, the word can kind of sound like a cold, harsh, legalese word. But that's not what it functions as in Scripture. You look at the covenants throughout history. You know, take take uh, Abraham. In Genesis 15. God made a covenant with Abraham. And, you know, the word for how the covenants were made was cut a covenant. And there's a reason for that. Because um, he... So, so Abraham cut up a bunch of different animals. Forget what all of them are, to be honest. You can go, it's Genesis 15 if you want to look it up. But a bunch of different animals. Abraham chopped them up. God told them to set them in a line. And then something really weird happened. There was a smoking pot and there was a flaming torch that were floating through the air. And in the middle of all of these animals that were cut in half, it went throughout the middle of those, 
right down the line. And what was that? Why, why, why did that weird thing happen? It was because the way those covenants were cut, the way those covenants were made, so those animals were cut up, and the person who was making the covenant would walk down the middle of those cut up animals in a way to say, I'll become like this. If I don't follow, if I don't pull through on my covenant promises to you, if I am not faithful to this covenant, let me become like these animals that I'm walking in the middle of. I'll become like this before I break this covenant. Think even back farther to Noah. There's, There's many scholars who think that the bow that God made the covenant, it is a covenant that God makes with Noah, the bow that God makes with Noah is symbolic. Yeah, it's a pretty rainbow. Happens after rain, so it kind of fits, right? But there's a lot of scholars that think this was actually following after the idea of a warrior's bow. That God put a bow in the sky in saying, this is what's going to happen to me if I break my promise to you. If I promise that I'm not going to, you know, preserve the earth anymore, preserve my people anymore, that arrow is going to shoot right up in the sky. It's not facing down. It's facing up. It's pointed up to the heavens. God's saying, I will pass away before I judge the earth out of existence and let my people perish. And directly after the passage quoted here in Jeremiah 31, this is after, after the passage that you know the writer of Hebrews is talking about, it says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Before me forever. Even clearer, directly right after this, he says, Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured, the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. He's saying, Before I cast you off, for all of the sins that you've committed, for all of the ways that you've broken the covenant. It'd be more possible for me to do that. It'd be more possible for me to forget you. It'd be more possible for me to forget my covenant with you than it would be for you to measure the entire universe. The impossibility of God failing his covenant people, breaking the covenant, forsaking his covenant promises is restated in the new covenant here. The covenant isn't some cold legal judgment. It's God's white-hot passion for his people. Before I break my covenant promises, God is saying, all the lights are going to have to go out. The impossible would have to happen. And I myself will die before, I'll submit myself to death before I leave my people. So what happens in that passage, so the Jeremiah passage that we just read, Just before that promise, look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one after his brother saying, know the Lord. For they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And by the way, isn't that cool? The bar here is knowing the Lord. 
right? Doesn't matter where you are in the, in the kingdom, what order you're in, you all know the Lord. There's a different, real, tangible presence of God with his people here. And we know, and the writer of Hebrews is arguing, that that's our true, one true high priest, Jesus. And because of the one sacrifice of this great high priest, verse 12 is true. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The sins and sufferings of my people will not repel me, and I can't break an eternal covenant. One based not on an earthly tent or priest or sacrifice or law or any other part of the old story, but on the real eternal Jesus who gives us the very spirit of God and a path to reality with the very presence of God. That's a better covenant. That's a better story. Verse 13, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The other story, the old one, the old story, that's obsolete. That doesn't mean it's bad. That means, that doesn't mean that God was, you know, mean for giving it or that it was wrong. It means that it's not necessary anymore because God is building a new story off of that. It provided a temporary way of showing who God was and what He wanted of us and how we can be forgiven, but it was a shadow of Jesus. So when Jesus steps in and shows us, like we see in Hebrews 1, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. When that radiance of the glory of God shows up, the shadows are not necessary anymore and they vanish away. He's saying, don't go back to the cave. That's not the path to reality. The only path to reality is out of the cave into the world. And Jesus is our way there. Jesus is our path to reality. So just kind of, you know, thinking of how this fits with us, who probably aren't tempted in the same way as this group of Christians was, where do we go from here? Where do we go with all of those stories that push and pull us away from the gospel? The author of Hebrews shows why the other story does not lead down to the path of reality, but a path of shadows, and why the redemption that Jesus offers is better. Jesus is better. So I want to ask you today, just thinking about this for yourself in this past week, what stories have you been believing in? What stories have you been living into? Maybe not explicitly, wouldn't exactly say it, but what have you worried about this week? What have you been excited about this week? What stressed you out this week? What story is that telling about you? Your hopes and fears and your dreams and what are those stories saying about who you are and what you're supposed to be doing and how you're ultimately supposed to be finding redemption and satisfaction? Is it the story of who you are as a consumer, like we talked about? The story of career advancement, where the entirety of who you are is defined by what you get paid for? Your only call is to efficiency and that's what's supposed to give you fulfillment? Or is it the story of Sex, where who you are is equal to your sexual desire and activity or lack thereof. And this is what's supposed to tell you who you are and bring you fulfillment. So politics, where your identity and redemption comes from, you know, the change that you want to bring in the world in some way. We could go on and on, but these competing stories have a tendency of creeping us, up, creeping up on us and pulling us away from the gospel in ways that are hard to see sometimes. So as a first point of application, 
What stories are pulling at you this week? And after that, the second point of application is do what Hebrews 8 does. Apply your theology. Apply the deep truths, the path to reality that the Word of God gives us. It can be kind of a trite, pithy thing to say Jesus is better, right? It's really easy to say sometimes. But actually working that out for ourselves and how that applies to the stories that push and pull at us is, you know, what the, what the writer of Hebrews, what Hebrews 8 here is helping us do. I encourage you this week to, to kind of name those, label those, and pull those out of your soul. Think on them, pray on them, interrogate them, and, and shine the light of reality on them. See what in those stories are shadows, things that are meant to point to something greater, to something better. Good things that are given to you temporarily to point to better heavenly things. To point to Jesus, the only path to reality. See through them how Jesus is the true fulfillment of your real desires. The Christian community here was turning to the other story because they, they wanted, probably because they wanted security. They liked the ritual. It's traditional to them. They wanted comfort. They wanted forgiveness. But as this chapter reminds us, all of those and everything your soul truly needs is found in Jesus. Sit in that satisfaction for this week and, and feel the power of those competing stories just kind of become obsolete to you. Vanish away. Jesus is better. We have a great opportunity this um, this week and in the next few weeks to be reminded of the only story that orients us to this reality. Advent is a time where we, you know, we, we await for the one who comes and he replaces the shadows with the real thing. Yeah. I was going to mess that up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, the German pastor and martyr, said, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Who look forward to something greater to come. Something better. In Advent, we who have broken the covenant, who have drifted to competing stories that tell us who we are, what, sh- what we should do, and where we find our redemption, 